Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fitz on Fantasy Podcast. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. You can find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. Well, here we are. It's draft week, or as I like to call it, football Christmas. Words simply cannot describe how much I love the NFL draft, and I know how much most of you love it, too. So let's get right to it. My guest this week is Thor Nystrom of Roto World. Find him on Twitter at Thor Koo. That's Thor, as in Hammer of Thor, and then the letters K and U. Thor is the lead college football writer at Roto World, and he teams up with Josh Norris and Evan Silva on the Roto World draft coverage. And let me just say that Thor writes the best, most entertaining player capsules for draft prospects that I've ever read. And look, I used to be one of Joel Buxbaum's errand boys at Pro Football Weekly, and Joel is a Mount Rushmore draft analyst. Uh, I once had agent Drew Rosenhaus tell me to my face that he loved Pro Football Weekly, but that he wouldn't even bother reading it if Joel Buxbaum weren't there writing about college prospects. Joel was an amazing analyst. May he rest in peace. But Thor can really, really write. Uh, Let me just read you one short passage from his evaluation of Alabama defensive tackle Quinn Williams. Here it goes. Williams isn't just a pass rusher. He is one heck of an anchor in run defense, sometimes angling his body and using his leg as sort of a wedge, like how you try to keep the door shut when your older brother was trying to force his way in as a kid. Quinnen does that, and then if the ball carrier tries to sneak through one of the gaps in his vicinity, he merely springs in that direction, leaving the offensive lineman stumbling forward into an empty room and jumps on the running back like a mountain lion. It's war o'clock when Quinnen steps on the field. The kid is terrifying. Okay. We need to hear more from Thor and some of the players whose names are going to be called in a few days. So let's get to it. Let's bring in Thor Nice. Well, this year's NFL draft is just days away, hours away, really. And so this week's guest had to be someone who's really dialed into college football, someone who has college football in their mitochondria. And I think I have just that sort of person here with me now. It's Thor Nystrom. He is the lead college writer at Roto World and draft analyst, of course. And he has been a busy, busy man lately, writing player capsules, recording a terrific nearly two-hour mock draft last week with Josh Norris, Chris Sims, and Paul Burmeister that I would urge you to check out. Uh, writing pre-draft articles, and basically just trying to get his followers and readers ready for football Christmas this week. Thor, so good to have you here. Am I overstating the level of busyness on your end, or is it definitely a headless chicken scenario for you? It's yeah, it's definitely a headless chicken scenario. Yeah, I, my, my girlfriend has had to help me like keep track of my my schedule and, and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I mean we're just 
we're trying to do the best we can, but my gosh, it's, I mean, you said it, it's, it's football Christmas. I mean, we get three days of it. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely tremendous. I love this stuff. So yeah, it's, it's been really fun and, and thanks for all that stuff, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, this is first and foremost, a fantasy football podcast, but I don't just want to talk to you about the skill positions uh, in this year's draft. I mean, this isn't exactly a banner draft class at the skill positions, especially not a quarterback or running back. Um, it seems like this class is more about infrastructure, offensive line, defensive line, uh, the depth of the defensive backs. Thor, what's your bird's eye view, I guess, of this class in terms of its overall strengths and uh, weakness, uh, positions you think are the best? What do you see primarily when you look at this class as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you had a great summation there. It's a it's a bad quarterback class. It's a bad running back class. It's a it's an interesting receiver class. You know, it's 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 got really good depth, uh, but there's not like a kind of like a Megatron in this one. Uh, I I think we do have a Megatron at tight end. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about my boy Hawkinson a little bit later on, but. Um, you know, then the, the tight end class after that, you know, drop off to tier two and then another drop off to tier three, whatever. Um, and yeah, the, the, you know, the offensive line class is solid. I, so some people disagree. There's a top 10 overall guy, but there is really good depth, you know, after that, you know, whoever your first guy is, whether it's Dillard or Jonah or Jawan or whatever, um, there's pretty good depth after that. I think there's like five, six, seven, maybe even seven guys that deserve to go in the first round or, or can at least be discussed like that. And then defensive line is, I mean, that's where we front seven, I, I should expand there. Um, you know, in terms of interior defensive line, in terms of edge, it's, I mean, it's top of the line. You know, it's its one of the better uh, classes we've had, in, you know, in terms of that of, well, certainly since I've been doing this, it's been a really long time. And we knew that, you know, coming into this year that this defensive line class was going to be absolutely crazy. You know, I was writing about this last May in my too early, you know, 2019 look ahead of like, guys, get ready because next year's defensive line class is going to be unlike anything you've ever seen. That was before Quinn and Williams and before Jerry Tillery emerged. You know, so like it's it's gotten even better. Um, the the edge rushers in this class are really good too. So yeah, I mean that if you need front seven help, this is this is the draft for you. Um, you know, cornerbacks. It's there, there's a lot of different guys there. Safeties as well. Um, the the top of those classes maybe not. We you know it's the same sort of thing where we might not have a Hall of Fame lock. Type, you know, kind of a guy at the top there. But uh, you know, interesting classes certainly depth. I mean, like safety. Man, I was. You know, I was doing my safety rankings. There's eight different guys that you could make an argument for safety one, you know, and so it's like, um, you know, it's very interesting in terms of evaluation. But yeah, for fantasy players, I'm sorry. This is not the not the draft class for you, but wait till next year. Yeah, next year looks to be pretty special as far as running backs and quarterbacks. Um, it's it's funny how, you know, everyone, at least people who are uh, had their heels dug in as deeply as you do, saw this defensive line class coming. But I think it was really underscored for anyone who was watching the combine and then seeing these guys run and putting up, you know, numbers comparable to, if not better than the 40 times that the running backs were putting up. I mean, just seeing guys like, you know, Montez Sweat run a 4-4, Quinnen Williams run a 4-8, just physical freaks in this class. Oh yeah. And there's, there's so many of them. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Like you said, when you, I mean, it, you know, it's crazy on its own, but then when you start comparing and contrasting with some of the, the offensive positions, you're just like, Whoa, you know, I mean, you, you have the transcendent, def- you know, interior class or whatever on, on the defensive line. And then you, you look at running backs and it's just like, man, I, 
you know, or <laughs> some of the quarterback, you know, as well. So yeah, it's the the dichotomy between those two things. It's it, it's pretty crazy. But yeah, I mean, if, if, if your team needs defensive help, and this is the class to buy it. Now, the first round of every draft has certain pivot points where teams do something that has ripple effects throughout the rest of the round. Um, have you looked at this like in, in maybe fleshing out a mock and um, identified potential pivot points, like seeing uh, any teams that you see as like the most intriguing teams of the first round in uh, sort of holding the key to the rest of the round? I, I think we can start at 1-1. Um, you know, I, throughout this, you know, it, you know, when the when the the tenure and and the, and the tide started to turn towards Kyler, ever since this started, I've been saying that in my opinion, it's a mistake. Um, you know, you you're going to overdraft this player who's who never existed before, right after you hired the fired Texas Tech coach. Now you're going to sell low on your your first rounder from last year, who's a good quarterback who was not in a position to succeed, and you have all these all these issues that were the reason that he couldn't succeed that you're not going to address by taking. This, you know, this 5'10", uh, you know, dual threat quarterback from Oklahoma. Um, and now it appears as though um, the tide is starting to turn the other way. Um, and I, I would not be surprised at all if Kyler Murray is not the first pick. Um, you know, particularly if, if Arizona stays there, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with uh, Pete Prisco's um, report um, just because that makes intuitive sense to me. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have a source within the Cardinals or whatever, but it just makes intuitive sense to me that the ownership would have been pushing for Murray um, in advance or whatever, and obviously Kingsbury had plenty of familiarity with uh, with old Kyler from playing in the same conference, being buds with some of the Oklahoma staff, like well, probably A and M staff used to be at A and M. So you know, knowing those guys well, so I think all that different stuff. But you know, I, I think when you keep, when you keep looking at I me mean, for Cliff and all these different guys, this is their future, Kime and stuff like that. Like if they whiff this one, they're all gone. And and I just. I, I don't know why you know after a year after you take Rosen that you're you would you would do that with Kyler. I, th- I think the the far smarter play would be either to, to trade down or if you're going to stay there, Quinn and Williams, Rex Worlds. Um, I'm a huge fan of Josh Allen as well. Uh, Bosa is is great as well. So I would go the other. So I think that's the first pivot point. You know, I, I think everyone just has written you know Kyler and and you know in pen. I am not convinced that that is going to happen. Um, so so that would be the first pivot point where we could get a crazy thing, and I, I think it just goes. You know, after that, you know, I mean, I, th- I think we know that, you know, I think the 49ers are, are probably going to take an edge rusher and the Jets are, the Jets are going to take someone on the defensive line to get after the quarterback, you know, whether it's edge or, or defensive line. We'll see about that. But then, you know, the Giants, for instance, at six, you were talking about that mock draft uh, from last week, you know, when I was out in Stanford and I had, I was assigned the Giants pick. And so when it came up to me and, you know, we didn't share, you know, picks in advance or whatever, it was like, you know, you just, you just showed up there and you're like in the, in the set or whatever, sitting next to Chris Sims, and he's like smiling, he's blinding your eyes you know, with how white his teeth are. The, the whole thing, it's just going so fast. You try to keep up, whatever. But you, the, basically, the, the premise of the show is that, like, you know, it was like every three picks. So Sims went first, and then Josh went second, I went third, and then I got every third pick, you know, beyond that. So I had the Giants pick, you know, at six, and um, I th- that was, you know, I, I, I picked uh, Dwayne Haskins for them, and I, you know, and I got. I got some, uh, some 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 sort of surprise, you know, sounds from the right side of the desk on that one or whatever. At the time, that was just they're not going to take Dwayne Haskins. I mean, that was sort of the narrative that you know that had been out there or whatever. But I never believed that. You know, the Gi- the Giants are a team that famously has leaks coming out of the front office like all the time. You know, I mean, like we you know we knew that they wanted uh, Conklin, and so they got they they got jumped for him. They we knew they wanted Leonard Floyd. They got jumped for him. But last year we knew they were going to take Saquon stuff like that. And it seems like this year, 
it's like Gettleman brings everyone into the office and he like locks the door. He like, you know, draws the shades down. He's like, all right, guys, you know, every year one of you guys or maybe all of you guys is telling the media, you know, like who we're going to pick and stuff like this time. We're not going to do that. In fact, I have an idea. And he like, you know, he takes out like a PowerPoint presentation. And he's like, all right, you guys all have your contacts. I want all of you to tell your contacts that we hate Dwayne Haskins. Dwayne Haskins stinks that he's a media creation. Uh, we're going to get people off the scent. We are not going to get hot for this kid, stuff like that. And you've seen reports, you know, in the past uh, 48 hours or so that <laughs> maybe the, the previous reports about them not being interested in Haskins were indeed a smokescreen. So we'll see about that. Um, you know, there's when you talk about pivot points, I think I think the first one is that is that one one. I think another big one is with the Giants. Do the Giants take a quarterback there or are they going to try to wait? Uh, to see if you know another guy that they might like will fall down the board a little bit, and if they do take a quarterback, will be Haskins, will be Jones. You know, I mean, they, I mean, they could go. You know, heck, could be Kyler, right? I mean, you know, if, if Arizona doesn't take Kyler, um, you know, there's there's reports that John Gruden likes him a lot, but I don't know. I mean, like when you're on the clock, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, so we're going to take this guy who used to be a baseball player and had one good season, and you know, in this this system that was like utterly ideal for a player of his skill set type, you know, or whatever. And, you know, like, are we going to use this pick that will determine our future, you know, in, in the in the organization and trying to mold this kid's game to the NFL? I I don't know. I, I could see Kyler dropping a little bit lower than than some people think. Did Daniel Jones, another guy, um, you know, and stuff like that. There's these different teams. Are they going to go quarterback? Or are they going to go not? So I, I think the fulcrum points that you talk about, I think they are related to the quarterbacks, you know, and, and, and it's hard to predict in advance because last year we had that awesome quarterback class. You know, we knew that that four of the guys at least were going to go really, really, really high. And we knew, pro- knew that probably five of them were going to go total. Whereas in this class, there's a debate about all these different guys. You know, some people love Haskins. Some people love Ky- – a lot of people love Kyler. Uh, Daniel Jones, a guy a lot of people don't like. I'm a little bit higher on him. But, like, um, you know, there seems to be a consensus that he's not a first-round pick, but he seems like he's going to go on the first round, stuff like that. So I think those are the wild cards. And then who, you know, who falls down the board? Is anyone going to try to trade up, you know, do what the Vikes did with Teddy Bridgewater back in the day, you know, get back into the first round, get the extra year? Um, so I, I, I think those are the the real wild card slots on the board. You've made some uh, in that mock. Uh, the live mock, you made some really interesting points about the Kyler Murray Cardinals thing, and and you just kind of restated them here. Um, but one of the points you made, and I, I thought this was a fascinating analogy, you talked about Rosen and sort of mentioned the early, not very fruitful portion of Chauncey Billups' NBA career when you were talking about Rosen. So could you explain that Billups analogy? I just thought it was so uh, interesting and, and salient when it comes to Rosen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And thank you. Um, yeah, you know, we, we see this more with the NBA than we see with the NFL. We talk a lot about, you know, this guy's got to get to the right situation. This guy got to get to the right situation. So we, we, we keep context in mind for these kids coming in and then we just forget it. You know, they, they get into the league and it's like, oh, he stinks. You know, I you're watching the Cardinals game. You're like, oh, man, this Rosen kid, he's awful. Why did they take him in the first round? It's like, well, playing behind an abomination of an offensive line like this coaching staff you know it's like they're on the green mile it's dead man walking like you know they're they're lame ducks they know they're done after the season they're all looking for their next jobs it's like it was just an absolute nightmare situation and Rosen is in that I like Rosen a lot you know I mentioned this before I'm very high on him as a player as high on him as a prospect I remain bullish on him I, I don't care about last season he was a the rookie who was playing, you know, after three years of college, right? So it would have been his senior year of, of college. And he's starting NFL games behind 
this sim of an offensive line for this, this coaching staff that doesn't really care anymore. So, you know, he was not in a position to succeed and to, you know, back to the thing about Billups, you see it more in the NBA where the kid comes in, you know, he's a sort of a ballyhoo kind of a pick and then context dictates his performance in the first season being bad. You know, and so like, you know, Billups is back in the day with like the Celtics. I think it was Rick Patino was a guy that took him and they like, you know, he, he, you know, sort of struggled for the first, you know, 30, 40 games of his career. And Patino was like, this kid stinks. We made a mistake, you know, and they trade him and he goes on to have like an awesome career and, you know, wins NBA titles and like all this different stuff. Um, and I, I think the same thing is going to happen with with Rosen. You, you just, you know, if, if they do trade him, it, maybe they're going to get back to what, in my opinion, is the correct decision, which is just hold the fort with Rosen. Do not sell low on him. Uh, we have too many other holes and he's going to be fine. Uh, let's start patching the offensive line and like stuff like that. And Rosen's game is going to play way up. But what I was going to say before is he's in that same sort of phylum as like a Kirk Cousins, you know, where, um, you know, if you can protect him and you have, you have solid receiver, he's going to play real well. He's going to go to, he's going to go to a bunch of pro bowls, but if you put him behind a sieve of an offensive line, he, he lacks mobility, right? You know, he, it, it's hard for him to create on his own and he's not at the, you know, say Peyton Manning level where he, you know, he, he can do the, you know, the decisions in the moment, you know, two seconds in or whatever. And Pey- Peyton played behind some really bad Colts offensive line, but he's a transcendent guy, you know, whereas, uh, you know, Rosen, Cousins, other guys like that, they're a little bit, you know, they're, they're a step below that, of course. Um, but, you know, if, if you get the pieces around them, they are going to be extremely effective. They can win Super Bowls. So, you know, that that's what I would do if I was if I was there. And if I was a team, you know, if I was the Chargers, if I was the Redskins, if I was the, well, the Giants, don't like them, I, apparently. But, you know, if, if I was one of those teams that needed a quarterback, instead of using a first-round pick or a top-ten pick on this terrible quarterback, you know, the next quarterback class is going to be way, way, way better. Last quarterback class is way better. Instead of using a pick on, on on one of these kids in this class, I would give a, you know, call Cliff and just say, hey, Cliff, what do you what, what do you want for Rose? What, what's going to get this done? A, a second this year, and what do you want next year? A fourth? You know, or whatever, and just see where you can – Get him in. I would try to swoop in and steal Rosen because, um, again, I, I think context. He, there, there was no way he was going to succeed last year. It's not a surprise. It's not an indictment of his of his skill level. You know, he's not he's not going to lock in there. Just sort of levitate above the stadium with all his you know terrible teammates. You know, he's just going to like you know lift the whole organization. It's just not not going to happen. And if Kyler goes in there, you know, they sell low at Rosen. They don't they don't fix the offensive line and. They got Cliff, who couldn't figure it out in Lubbock for six years. That you know, the this, this city loved him, but they, the administration was forced to fire him anyway because he failed over and over again. You know, with with Cliff and you know, with all this stuff. Like, I I just think it's a you're you're heading for a potential disaster early on before the you know before they've even taken hold, but before the new administrations even unpack their stuff in the office. Right, and and as you mentioned, if if they get this wrong, I mean, the front office is gone. The organization's going to be in the gutter for five years, probably at least. Um, now you actually have Dwayne Haskins ranked ahead of Murray. Um, are, are you're still pretty firm on that? What what's the uh, rationale? Yeah, I am. Yeah, in uh, you know, in terms of uh, just skill sets, um, I, I think it, it's pretty close. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously they're they're different skill sets, but in, just in terms of you know from a value perspective, I, I I do think it's fairly close. Not in love with any either of them. I'm not going to have them as top ten prospects. Um, but I, you know, the, the big tiebreaker for, for Haskins occurred because I, I think Murray's, I think Kyler's risk profile is a lot higher than, um, you know, the media is talking about it as. So that's, you know, that, that's a part of it. Um, and then the other part is just that, like, I really like Haskins as, 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 as a prospect. I mean, he's, he's great. You know, I mean, he, he, we would have seen him for like three, 
maybe four years if he'd gone to Maryland, which is what he wanted to do. And then they they fired the coach, you know, that, that recruited him, Randy Edsel, and then specifically the assistant, uh, Mike Loxley, was, was the guy that Haskins liked. And uh, Maryland elected, instead of promoting Loxley to, to the, the permanent head coach, they, they hired DJ Durkin, which just turned into a, a nightmare. And so Haskins flipped late in the process to Ohio State. He had to sit behind some veterans and stuff like that. But he's a fabulously talented kid. And the arm talent is ridiculous. He, he reminds me more of a major league pitcher. And so I use this analogy a lot with him. He reminds me more of like a, a Dwight Gooden type. He, he's got extremely long levers and his, his shoulder socket is just like, you know, I mean, he could do whatever he wants. And so he's just, you know, it's like over the top. It's like a pitching machine. He's just like flinging these fastballs down the seam like, like, like a Dwight Gooden. Um, you know, very twitchy arm. We talk about twitch a lot you know, with, with other positions and, and movement and stuff like that. Haskins has it with his arm. Um, very accurate. He's accurate to all levels of the field. If you look at like the advanced charting, you know, the guys that look at every single play and chart every single throw, Haskins was near the top of the class in like almost every sector, you know, like in it, it, specifically the, like the money zones there in the intermediate sector, you know, six to 10, 11 to 15, 16 to 20. He's, you know, near the top of the class. And then one thing that really, really impressed me, I um, mean, this show's on film, but, you know, it's nice to get the, the you know, the other context, you know, nice to have it confirmed is that, uh, um, Derek Clawson has, you know, he, he, he does a lot of this, uh, uh, quarterback charting, you know, he charts every throw from the top 10 guys or whatever. And, and he has this stat of throws that required an adjustment by the receiver. Haskins is Haskins was number one and he was number one by margin. He, his, his percentage, he was like 1.1%. It was less than half that of the second guy who was Will Greer. I think he was like, you know, high twos to 2.7 or something like that. And so Haskins' throws are always on the money. They always come with velocity, um, you know, good touch and all that kind of stuff. Also, Haskins, you know, I, I say he runs like the field is made of pudding. He's not, you know, he's not mobile at all, but he does move around in the pocket. He's effective moving around in the pocket. And yet I believe he had the class's highest accuracy percentage outside of the pocket, which I, I think a lot of people would be um, sort of surprised to hear. And then you go back to that other stat about the throws that required adjustments. Kyler Murray was actually near the bottom of the top 10, you know, when the, the you know, the top 10 quarterback class and the thing in that stat, he was near the bottom of, of, of the list. And I think what, where, why that should trouble people is, you know, number one, of course, Kyler's is a player that who's never really existed before. And a lot of, a lot of his value comes from his, um, you know, being able to scramble. He's, I compare him to Devin Hester, you know, like in the open field, he might be the best scram, scrambling quarterback we ever see. But, you know, in terms of being a thrower, he's got a great arm. You know, he, he was comp to Andrew McCutcheon in baseball, you know, a guy who, you know, could wipe people out from center field, you know, as far as that. He's got the arm strength. But I wonder about his accuracy um, and I wonder about his touch, you know, like, you know, as, as we push it down the field and stuff like that, because he, he can get a bit errant. And like what I compare it to is like sometimes he he thinks he's on the warning track and he's got to, you know, gun someone. His, his, his mechanics get all get all wonky. But um, you know, when, when you look at his just regular counting stats, you, you know, you were, you were talking about some of it before, like they're crazy, you know, some of his, some of his stats and his accuracy percentage, just like by the counting numbers to every sector, it's very, very high. But when you look at some of these other uh, metrics, you know, where, where it's basically what it's suggesting to you is that Kyler was helped more by his receivers than any other quarterback, in this, which makes, you know, than any other quarterback in this class, which makes a ton of sense because his receivers were awesome. His offensive line was awesome. His coaching staff is, I mean, he's basically has an NFL coaching staff. I mean, the NFL wants badly wants Lincoln Riley. He just doesn't want to leave yet. Um, so, you know, you had all those different factors that were working in, in, in Kyler's favor. 
And, you know, then you look at a guy like Daniel Jones, who's like his drop rate from his receivers, or Daniel Jones' receivers were just absolutely abysmal. And so his drop rate was super duper high. And you start to think of like, well, what if, you know, what, what if Kyler and what, what if Lincoln Riley and David Cutcliffe had made a trade before the season and Daniel Jones was the quarterback of Oklahoma and he got to play with that NFL offensive line, all them NFL receivers, all them NFL running backs, you know, Lincoln's calling the plays, all that kind of stuff. And then Kyler's playing on Duke, a team that doesn't have any, any other players. Um, I don't think that we're talking about Kyler as, as a top 10 uh, prospect right now. And so I think like, you know, you, you have to bake in some of that um, context. And I think that's, you know, in my work, that's what I labor to do. Sure. And I, I wanted to ask you about Jones, who you have said you're tentatively bullish on. And uh, yep. <clears throat> you've got him ranked ahead of Drew Locke. So what what are some of the things you like about Jones? Uh, I, I like mechanically polished. I like that he's a big kid who's mobile. He's athletic. I, I think, you know, some of the um, the running stuff we saw with Josh Allen last year, Josh Allen at Wyoming, he wasn't, uh, you know, this this like, you know, awesome, awesome, awesome scrambler. But we knew he had it in him. Uh, because, you know, of the, of the dimensions and the athleticism and stuff. And, and Daniel Jones has that stuff um, as well. You know, and he, he comes from the quarterback whisperer, David Cutcliffe, who, you know, was the mentor to both the Mannings. Um, and the other thing I'd say that the big part of Daniel Jones's evaluation, it, it comes down to this. Daniel Jones, we know he's going to be a good running quarterback. Uh, we know that he is awesome in the short area. Uh, he's one of the best in this class at it. We also know he's very, very good in the intermediate area. The one super duper troubling thing about his profile is he, you know, downfield, his deep game was non-existent at Duke. But, you know, again, bringing the context into it, because a lot of a lot of times for a lot of people that, that do this, that's sort of where their evaluation ends. You know, or analytics guys that, that they, they see that Daniel Jones's stats stink or that, you know, he wasn't, be, you know, he wasn't completing balls down the field. And, and so their systems, when they run these regression models, they're looking at similar guys who had stats like that. Um, you know, they, it, they, they drop him way down the board, you know, the models don't like him, but you have to, you have to bring the context into it, which is, you know, again, like I was mentioning before, he, Daniel Jones has an awful, had an awful, awful offensive line. His receivers were very, very, very poor. Um, you know, they, they finally had developed this kid. They thought was going to be a deep threat for him this year. This this young kid. And, uh, you know, he had, he had a good first game with him or whatever. And then this, this young kid got injured. Duke was just ravaged by injuries this year, including to Jones, which is the other piece of context that people just don't consider when they talk about him. Daniel Jones broke his collarbone. In early September, you know, and, and like of, of this year, of 2018, we thought, he, well, I thought he was going to be out for, if not the whole season, most of it. Um, he came back two weeks later or three weeks later or whatever. And there was like all these stories like <laughs> out of Duke where they had like, you know, they had these like smart guys like in their lab there to like the 3D printer and like stuff like that. Like, I, I don't even understand all this stuff, but they figured out a way to, to get him back on the field. And the kid is just so tough, you know, and so he did it. He, he went back out there, whatever. And cut clip basically even more so um uh, you know ramped up the aggression as far as having this like sort of spread system daniel jones was in uh you know zero you know with a no running backs back there you had five receivers whatever empty he was he was in it a lot you know a lot more than some of these other quarterbacks in this class dude didn't have any running backs either and so they just basically they knew they had they knew that jones was extremely accurate in the short to intermediate sector they knew that he was mobile and so they basically Cutcliffe, who is an offensive genius, he, he you know, knowing that his quarterback is compromised as well, playing behind a bad offensive line with no receivers that can catch the ball down the field, they basically just created this sort of, you know, fast-paced dink and dunk uh, type system where Jones would just, you know, hit people short and then, you know, sort of see what happens or whatever. 
Um, I, I think you have to remember all that stuff, like when you're you're thinking about him and, and like his statistical profile and stuff. And and then your only question comes: Can Daniel Jones do damage down the field in the NFL? Because if he can't, uh, well, he's going to bust if he goes in the top ten. If he can't throw the ball down the field in in, in the NFL, uh, but I think there are contextual reasons to suggest why he was not able to in in college. A lot of them having not to do with him, uh, but his teammates uh, and his health and. And, and general strategy. Daniel Jones' arm is fine. He, he doesn't have a cannon, nothing like that, but like it's average. He can push the ball down the field for sure. They just they didn't have anyone that could uh, catch it. So does he lack touch or is he, is, can he actually do it? And they just didn't have anyone that could catch the ball. Now, Thor, switching over to tight end, I, I don't want to keep you from talking about TJ Hawkinson any longer than necessary. So um, <laughs> you, you attended the University of Iowa and uh, I did, you know, sometime in the last decade, uh, Maybe it was C.J. Fedorowicz laying the groundwork for this positional renaissance seven or eight years ago. But uh, Iowa has become one of the NFL's uh, really the premier tight end factory with, uh, you know, this year, Hawkinson and Fant and uh, earlier George Kittle and uh, Tony Moyaki. Oh, that's right. How could I forget yeah, all, about- ki- all kinds of guys. Yeah. <laughs> So you're intimately familiar with these guys as a Hawkeye fan, and I'm dying to get your take on them. We've heard the Rob Gronkowski, Aaron Hernandez comps with Hawkinson and Fance uh, on field comparisons, of course. Right. With Gronk being the or uh, Hawkinson being the Gronk doppelganger, and and Fant as Hernandez, are those reasonable comps? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, fans, you know, in general, you know, when you're, when you're just sort of thinking about because, you know, Brian Ferentz, who's the offensive coordinator at Iowa, Kirk's son, he was he was the tight end coach of Gronkowski and Hernandez back in the day for a season. And then he decided to go back and uh, join his old man on on the Iowa staff after that. And then, you know, down the line, he, you know, when he when he became the offensive coordinator, when he got promoted to it, all of a sudden he had TJ Hawkinson and, and Noah Fan. He's like, oh, my gosh, I, I I have sort of like the the makings of the starter kit of like that that Patriots team. We had that one season or whatever. Um, so, yeah, like, um, you know, th- there are some di- the, the differences would come more between Fant and, and Hernandez, especially off the field. But, uh, yeah, in, in, roughly, generally in speaking, yes, I, I yeah, th- that's fair. I do compare. Hawkinson to Gronkowski, he he gets a lot of like Kelsey uh, type comps. Um, I don't know if that goes far enough. Uh, Hawkinson is the best tight end that I've seen in college since I'm well. I was going to say since I've been doing this, but it's been longer than that. I, I I think he's the the best tight end prospect to come into the NFL since Vernon Davis. Um, he 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 can just do so many different things. Uh, you know, before this season, you know, in in 2017, he was basically just. Uh, Super athletic, but super raw, uh, kind of a guy who was like a tertiary option in, in the receiving game, but he was an awesome blocker, just a wipeout blocker. So they'd use him as like this weapon. You know, they'd, they'd have him as a lead blocker. They'd do the H back day, you know, motion a bit at the backfield. Hey, TJ, we need you to take this guy out. You know, we're going to run the counter. You got to seal this guy, whatever. Um, you know, and so, so they would do like different stuff like with him like that, or obviously in line. TJ, we need you to ragdoll this defensive end 20 yards downfield. And so he would do all that different stuff. And then fans, you know, in 2017, that's when he emerged as like, you know, this this really good sort of space player and this really good uh, player in the red zone, stuff like that. Well, in 2018, you know, and, and I had ranked Fant, you know, my too early look ahead or whatever in uh, last May, I'd ranked Fant T1. You know, I mean, that's what he was at the time because Hawkinson was not a featured receiver. We did not know how, you know, it's like kind of like Foster Moreau's evaluation, like in this class where like it's a really good blocker. Um, and we know that he's athletic, but we just didn't see the receiving stuff enough to like, 
projected out really well. That was Hawkinson coming into this year. But, um, you know, from September 1st on, you know, and like you mentioned, I, I went to Iowa and, you know, with work, I cover college football. I don't cover the NFL. I cover college football. And so I watch all the games every single time slot. I got like, you know, six screens going in my apartment, you know, just all day Saturday, watch all the match and watch the Thursday night games on ESPN, like the whole deal. And with Iowa, you know, from the jump, TJ Hawkinson this year was the number one receiver. He was the go-to guy. He was the guy, if you needed something, you went to TJ, you needed yards, you go to TJ, all this different stuff in the receiving game. And he was still, of course, just an absolute monster um, as a blocker. But, you know, I think people need to understand, Hawkinson usurped Fant clearly, objectively, but it was not close as the number one target on that team this year. Um, and and the guys who 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 made that call are the Ferences, who, as you, you mentioned, are, um, you know, Iowa has become... TEU. And you can sort of quibble about like some of the, you know, I mean, I, I saw a lot of stuff on the internet about like, oh, you know, those guys, they should have been throwing the ball to him more and stuff like that. Well, maybe, you know, but I, Iowa has the system that they have. And, you know, with the targets that Hawkins had had, he was, he was awesome. You know, I mean, he, he doesn't really drop the ball. He's athletic as heck. You know, the, the, the only thing, you know, in, in terms of his profile, that's a little bit down would just be the foot speed. I, I think he averaged, uh, or I think he, uh, I think his run was 470. But I think on the field, it's, it's closer to the high fives or, you know, four fives, excuse me. Um, and, you know, the, the other tests he was great at. And that you see that on the field. Like, um, you know, he, he's a very, very fluid mover, both, you know, when he's out on routes. But then also, you know, with Blocky, you see his footwork and, you know, his his short area quickness, like in his agility, his fluidity, stuff like that. Um, and then his athleticism, you know, when he when he catches the ball, he's, he's, he's a solid route runner, stuff like that, even though it's early. You know, I mean, he, he has not been developed in that phase as much as, for instance, fans or whatever. Um, but he does run pretty good routes. And when he gets the ball and it, it's extremely difficult to get the kid down, obviously. Um, and so he'll like shuck someone off. And now all of a sudden TJ Hawkins is going upfield and he's like this, you know, berserker colossus. And you're like, oh, no. And and so like, the, you know, defensive backs, you know, the safeties and stuff like that. They had the same strategy to try to take this kid out in the open field that, that the NFL started to do with Gronkowski of like, all right, let's just take the kid's knees out, you know, call it a day. We'll move on to the next play. And so, you know, you see these safeties coming in like kamikazes with Hawkinson and every single time it, you, you started to anticipate like what Hawkinson was going to do because you saw it several times. He would go to the air. You know, and, and he knew that the, what, what the guy was going to do. You know, he'd be the, the safety would be flying down on him. You know, be barren low, and then you know he'd he'd make his intentions known. You know, go deep and just try to kamikaze. You know, uh, Hawkinson at the knee. Hawkinson just jump over him. You know, he just he just go to the sky, jump right over him, and then we're chucking downfield more. It's extremely difficult to get him on the field. He doesn't drop nearly as much as many balls as Fant, even though you know he's he, he's not as uh, polished in that area yet as Fant is clearly the number one receiver in, uh, you know, not only with Iowa, but he was the best receiving tight end in college football last year. You know, he won the Mackey and that was not because he's, at, at, you know, like one of the better blocking tight ends we've seen. It's a lot of, a lot of it was because of the receiving. So I, I love Hawkinson to me. He's a top five overall prospect in this class. You cannot, you, you cannot like compare and contrast him with other tight ends, you know, that, that have been in these past couple classes. Cause since, you know, I've been going nuts about Hawkinson since the fall, you know, and I, I see all the same arguments, you know, when, on Twitter and stuff like that, people would say like, oh, you know, you, you know, even though, you know, even, even if you say that he's T1, which I'm not sure that he is, but even if let's just say that he is, you know, you can't, you can't take a tight end in the top 10 because that's just not what you do or whatever. Uh, it, okay. If, if that's your ideology, then you need to stop considering TJ Hawkinson a tight end. He, he's not OJ Howard or he's not, you know, Evan Ingram, or he's not like one of these guys. He can do everything on, on any given play. He is a trump card. He's a chess piece, you know, and, and so whatever you need, 
he's going to do it at an extremely high level, whether it's blocking, which he's going to immediately become one of the NFL's best blocking tight ends. And as a, as a receiver, he's going to, you know, in, in very short order, he's going to be one of the NFL's better receiving tight ends too. The other thing I'd say is he's got a lot of room to add weight onto his frame. He's, he is a very big kid. And on film, I, I don't think, you know, some people going back, I don't think they really realize this because, you know, Hawkinson, like where he wore like a number in the forties. And so like moving around the field, sometimes you like, you would sort of, your, your eye might've gotten tricked into thinking that he was like some sort of H back or some sort of like fullback or whatever, especially because of how well he moves or whatever. Um, I don't think people realize just how big he is. He's 6'5", 251. Um, and like I said, he's, he's got, he's got room to add weight. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I could just not be more sky high on, on Hawkinson. Yeah, the, the pure two-way tight end is so rare these days, and you keep seeing Hawkinson mocked to the Packers at number 12, but it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him go to Jacksonville at number seven. And I, I wonder if, you know, Mayock could possibly be interested at number four, you know, because he really is that that good a prospect, as you've underscored. Um, Thor, how did you come to love college football? I have to know. what uh, When did you uh, – just realized that you were head over heels in love with the college game. You know, before, like when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the NFL. Like I, you know, I could do, I could tick off like the, the, you know, the three deeps for the quarterbacks and then all the other positions, you know, every team, right. Like, and all that kind of stuff. And I always loved the NFL draft. And I think what, what really got me to flip and go more towards college in the NFL, funny enough was, was the game uh, NCAA football. You know, and I started playing that with my buddies and we would recruit and we'd add the names, you know, because when, when it came out, the PlayStation, you know, two and the three games, whatnot, it would be like, you know, it'd be like, you know, quarterback 11 or whatever. And, it, you know, of course, it, but it'd be the traits of, you know, the, the, the guy on that team that was the real quarterback. Nate, Nate Stanley, for instance, and I that this year, you know, quarterback, whatever. So we changed all the names, you know, to make it like the, the real teams or whatever. And I, I really got into like the whole recruiting thing. And then I started to get more interested in, in college football. This is probably like later on in middle school or something like that. And then, uh, yeah, I just... I really developed an affinity for it. And, you know, then I went to college. I wanted to go to an FBS college because I wanted to watch FBS football. Um, and so that, those are the only schools I applied to. I ended up going to Kansas, which uh, was a was a cruel uh, quirk of fate, you know, as far as being a super duper big college football fan. But we did win an Orange Bowl. Uh, Kansas did. We beat uh, Virginia Tech my senior year of, of college. And then the program went back into the crapper right after I left. But at least I got you know, that moment or whatever. Then I got to go to Iowa and, and be like at a real football school with the, you know, they'd show up outside of Kinnick at like, you know, four or 5 a.m. for an 11 a.m. kick. Like it, utter insanity, you know, like seeing this, you know, it, it was crazy. You know, I just, I, I just loved it. And then, you know, early on with Roto World, I, I covered baseball for, for four or five years because I covered the twins for one year as an intern coming out of undergrad. And, uh, you know, when we eventually we, you know, I, I taught in China for one year and I was, I was doing the baseball thing over there doing like West Coast baseball games because you know, the clock is flipped. So I got to, you know, I took like the shift that nobody wants with that. But when I came back, they switched me to college football in the draft. And those, those are my first two loves. So, yeah, anyway, it's been great. So you were the, you were at Kansas for the Mark Mangino? Years? I was. Oh, nice. Yep. I guess if you're going to go there and you're a college football fan, that was like the one time to be there. It it really was, yeah. I, I call him the man genius. I I love that man. Uh, he he was he was unfortunately blackballed from the game. You know, he he had a disagreement with it with the AD. We don't have to get into all that kind of stuff. But uh, bad you know, bad was he an underrated coach? And and we had some really fun teams when when I was there. And it's it's weird because the rise of Kansas football, the golden era of Kansas football, was like in this one four to five year patch where I just so happened to be in Lawrence. So it was 
was great. But the rest of my life with the thing, it's, man, is it going to be a slog? Now, and you're a Vikings fan too, mm-hmm. correct? All right. Now, we don't have to yes, plumb sir. the deepest depth of your damaged psyche, but uh, <laughs> this team has caused you some pain, I'm sure. What were, what were some of the toughest losses over the years? Oh, well, nothing will ever top 98. Um, that it's like, it's like this broken hearted thing that, that like stays with me, you know, cause I was, uh, you know, at the time I was uh, 13 or 14 and that team was everything to me. You know, it's like just, you know, one of the, one of the funnest teams you're ever going to see, you know, with Randy Botts and Chris Carter, Randall Cunningham, like Robert Smith, like the offensive line was awesome. John Randall, like the, the, the whole thing, it was just such a fun team. They just blasted everyone all year. You know, I think they were 15 and one going into the playoffs and, uh, yeah, they, we should have beaten the Falcons. We had, we had the Falcons beat, we had them dead to rights. And, uh, Gary Anderson, who hadn't, hadn't missed a kick all year, uh, decides to miss a chip shot. And, uh, yeah, and we, we, we lost in overtime to the dirty birds and that one, that one still really stings. So that one sucked. The bounty game against the saints, uh, sucked, you know, with far where they were going after his knees and they compromised him early. And then of course, at the very end of the game, you know, with, uh, you know, Favre was like scrambling out or whatever. And he easily could have run for a first down, but of course he's got these, you know, these bum knees because they've been dive bombing him the whole game. And so he decides to throw across body, throws the interception, go into overtime, lose the game. Uh, so, you know, that, that one, you know, was awful too. Um, it's just like over and over and over again. It's like, you know, you either have these like mediocre sort of forgettable seasons or you get into a really big spot and something like awful goes against you. You know, the Eagles, you know, and the, the Super Bowl is going to be played in Minneapolis. I'm living in Minneapolis. Like we're so excited. We're going to play the Eagles. We're going to go in there. We're going to rip them up. And then, you know, we score the first touchdown. And it's like, all right, let's, man, in two weeks, this is going to be so fun. We're going to tailgate all weekend, you know, out there in front of the bank and stuff like that. And then they just blast us, which, you know, for Vikings fans, it was just like old familiar. It's just like hot dish. You know, the, the Vikings, like, you know, botching a big, big moment like that. It's just, it feels like home, you know? <laughs> it's a Minnesota tradition, like hot dish. It's a good comp. Uh, <laughs> Thor, uh, let's turn to the running backs briefly in this sure. class. Yeah. You have uh, David Montgomery ranked ahead of Josh Jacobs. What is it you like most about Montgomery, and, and how concerned are you about his lack of a breakaway gear? I mean, I'm not concerned about it. It's just, you know, because it's not a disqualifier, right? Like, the guy that I comp him to is Kareem Hunt. I, I Basically, I call David Montgomery Kareem Hunt with a heart of gold is 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 what he is. I, I, and as a player, I think he even might be slightly better. He's got a little bit more foot speed, you know, Kareem Hunt, he he ran like in the, I think he ran like a four six two or something like that during his process. Um, where Montgomery got into the into the four fives. Um, you know, I mean Montgomery, his spark score was only thirty six point four. His his speed score wasn't terribly high. Uh, but this is what I would suggest to people out there is, you know, the combine is great for some things. You know, it can test certain things. We can we can see how fast you are. We can see how quick you are. We can see how fluid of a mover you are in space. We you know we can we can see how explosive you are. We can test your jump stuff like that. See how strong you are. You know, puts in and, and we can interview you. I'll bring you in front of a psychologist. We'll do all those wonky things. We'll slap your face. We'll ask you these weird questions. We'll show you you know Warshak tests like all that kind of stuff. But there are tests that they do not have. They they don't you know they don't have the capability to do it. Um, and, and one of them, you know, with, with regards to running backs, time about running backs here, uh, the combine cannot test what is the most important uh, factor or trait or skill for a running back, which is how hard is it to get that guy on the ground? How hard is it to sweep him off of his feet and get him on the ground? They don't have a test for it. Um, and if they did, David Montgomery and Devin Singletary in this class would have tested 
near the top, you know, and, and at least in terms of that. And if it was like a weighted kind of a thing, you know, which which I is something I like about like RAS or like some of these other metrics out there where they weight, um, you know, the um, you know the, the different tests and stuff like that, um, you know, uh, for, for a running back, whatever that that would have you know just shot the, these guys' spark and 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 their RAS scores up, but they can't do that. Right. We, you know, we don't have that that sort of a thing. And so David Montgomery is a guy who, um, you know, I mean, like over the past couple of years, he he led the the FBS and broken tackles by an absurd uh, you know, amount or whatever by margin. You know, the, the thing that I say about David Montgomery is it takes a SWAT team to get him down. You know, his his offensive line at Iowa State was an absolute joke. Uh, you know, it was probably even worse than Duke's offensive line. I mean, it, it was bad throughout throughout his time there. And so every single time that that Montgomery got the ball, he was confronted with guys in the backfield. You know, and then it just became like you know, like a, a scene from like the old you know Batman on television, where it's like Batman surrounded by like eight guys, and it's like, man, Batman ain't, ain't getting out of this one. And then all of a sudden, sudden you see like, bam, whop, you know, like whatever. And then like the camera comes back, and like every all the defenders are on the ground, and David Montgomery's still on his feet. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's got that thing, you know, very, you know, and agility as well with it. So you, you're talking about awesome balance. You're talking about awesome agility. Um, you're talking about really good power. He's like a spinning top, you know, like I, the other thing you see a lot with Montgomery that you don't see with other guys where it's just like, holy moly. It's that thing of like where you know, a guy will have them wrapped up and they'll sort of like, you know, flip over or whatever. And it will appear that they're going down. And so you'll like, you know, you'll like look over cause you think the play's over or whatever, take a, take a little breath. And Montgomery will do the thing where he'll like spin in the air, like, you know, as he's going down, as he's assuredly tackled and he'll keep his feet. And, you know, and, and the, you know, all the defenders around him are, you know, now they're pulling up or whatever because the play's over, but it's not, you know, and, and now Montgomery's continuing to chug downfield, um, you know, a great receiver. He's got long arms. The, the rest of his dimensions aren't great. Um, you know, he, he's built very sturdy or whatever, low to the ground, but he's got long arms and those help, you know, in terms of being a receiver where he's very polished as, as a receiver. I think that's a part of his game that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he doesn't have Josh Jacobs's explosion. Um, for sure. So, you know, I, I, I do get some of that stuff, but uh, yeah, I mean, Montgomery has been my, my number one running back from the start. Um, I didn't need Josh Jacobs to test um, disappointingly, you know, to, to make that move or whatever. I think Josh Jacobs, he, he has his uses for sure. You know, if, if you're a team that, that, you know, passes the ball a lot um, and you have, a, you're a team that has like a, a guy who can do early down grinding kind of work, then I want Josh Jacobs because Josh Jacobs is going to be really, really good, you know, on passing downs. You know, um, we have some things to work on there, but Josh Jacobs is a very natural receiver. Um, I just think as far as like being a pure running back, stuff like that, like, you know, in, in terms of giving, you know, carries and stuff like that, I don't want Jacobs doing that. I, I think I think Nick Saban, you know, and, and that staff, staff down there in Alabama, they used him um, perfectly. They, they use him exactly how you would want to use him. They had Damian Harris. He, you know, he would start the games and he'd do a lot of that kind of grinding work or whatever. And then you bring Jacobs in situationally you know he Jacobs you know he he got series of course you know they they, they did this thing where they would like rotate series Najee Harris who was the number one recruit a couple of years ago at running back as well Alabama, Alabama had him as well so they'd sort of rotate these kids but you know J- Jacobs did get to come in you know situationally and stuff like that and that's where he really shines you know being being a polished receiver he's he's a good pass blocker he needs to get better um because Jacobs is like he's a really tough kid and he's just always wants to behead people instead of just like keeping form so sometimes he like he whiffs and stuff like that but good you know i mean that's a nitpicky type thing he's, he's a good pass blocker so yeah i mean i i do i do like jacobs but you know for me montgomery is the only guy in this class where i'm telling you I, i'll guarantee it he's he's going to be a bell cow he could have been a bell cow last year in the nfl 
Um, and now he gets to play with he gets to play with an offensive line in, in the NFL, you know, and he's he's going to get to play with with other players around him, um, you know, that that aren't going to allow the defense to gang up on him. At Iowa State last year, it was Hakeem Butler and it was David Montgomery, and then a bunch of you know guys around them that were you know Matt caliber offensive players, you know, and so it, those guys had really tough situation. They transcended it anyway. They had great seasons, so I, I like Montgomery a lot. Thor, I know we're running short on time. There are just a couple receivers I want to get your quick takes on. Uh, Hakeem Butler, why is he your number one? I love Hakeem Butler. Uh, Hakeem Butler is a guy that the you know the NFL was too low on him coming into this this past season. You know they have like the scouting services or whatever, like you know people have heard of Blesto, maybe stuff like that. Those services were way too low on Hakeem Butler coming into this season, and I think a part of the reason they missed him is because. Hakeem, um, you know, his his high school career was very fragmented due to reasons outside of his control. And that's why he was overlooked. And it's why he was not developed in in, in high school. He, had, he was forced to move from from the Baltimore area down to Texas. He lived with the Harrison twins, his cousins, uh, who went on to play basketball in Kentucky and then went on went on to the NBA because Hakeem's mother had died. And so he had to move down there, whatever. And then the Texas football folks decided to suspend Hakeem for half of the season because they said he was moving because of football, you know, athletic kind of, kind of reasons or whatever. And and so like he 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 just never had the opportunity uh, to sort of develop like that. And so when he went to Iowa State, you know, he went to Ames. He was just like this, you know, tall, angular kid who was a, who was a good athlete. He just really didn't know what he was doing. It's sort of like Lamar Jackson, you know, when he went to Louisville, quarterback that you know in college or sorry in high school, you know, they'd run this super wonky offense that did him no favors developmentally. Uh, you know, and then and then when he got to Iowa State, they really had to work with Hakeem. You know, and and you know, t- 2017 he became the, the the number two receiver to to Alan Lazard. He kept Lazard in the slot quite a bit, and we got to see Hakeem outside a bunch. He did really really good things, and then he came back. Iowa State didn't have any other receivers. You can look at like the target share numbers and stuff like that, or you can just look at the counting stats. They didn't have any other receivers. It was all Hakeem. It was a throw to Hakeem, throw to Hakeem, throw to Hakeem. Hakeem had a really high drop rate. That is the one troubling thing of his evaluation. It's it's bad. You know, it's like it's like sixteen point eight last year or something. Like really bad. Um, but the thing I would say is a couple of things. Despite that, he was easily number one in the nation as as a downfield threat. Um, you know, by by any metric. You know, if you look at like the the PFF grading, he's by far number one. If you look at just the counting stats in terms of catches, twenty yards downfield, in terms of yards, twenty yards downfield, even with the drops baked in, right? And so so if that number drops. You know that's just going to shoot up. I, I I think that Hakeem, you know, in terms of downfield, you're, you're talking about a Mike Evans or, or a Plaxico Burris type, and and you know the the, the better he gets, you know, and it, the more the more balls he's coming down with, the better that's going to get. And I don't think there's anything wrong with his hands. You know, it's not like an Andy Isabella situation where you know Isabella requires his body to reel some of these balls, and that's not Hakeem. Hakeem made just crazy catches last year. You know, I mean, he had a play against Kansas where he like he had to work back to a ball that was 20 yards under throwing when Hakeem had just singed the safety. It was wide open. Just throw a lollipop down there. You know, it's it's six points. Um, and and the the true freshman quarterback that uh, Iowa State has this uh, noodle arm kid named Brock Purdy underthrows the ball by 20 yards. Hakeem's got to slam on the brakes, work back the ball furiously, jump over the defensive back. He catches it with his hands, over, you know, over the kid. You know, then lands on him, basically throws him aside. You know, and runs into the end zone. Um, he can just do so many things. He he has the you know the, the the biggest dimensions you know in terms of catch radius, in terms of height, stuff like that. Six five two twenty seven, super duper long arms. His catch radius. He's going to go into the NFL as as having one of the the big catch radiuses we've ever seen. And maybe it is the biggest. You know, I, I say he has the catch radius of an Indian god. You know, it's so like some of these drops he had were balls that no other receiver had the dimensions to even get close to. You know, and so it's like you count it as a drop, but you know. 
Ozzie Smith back in the day with the Cardinals, there was always the thing like, why does Ozzie, if, if Ozzie Smith is so good at defense, why, why has he got 25 errors? You know, and, and then we eventually were able to, you know, do like, you know, zone metrics and like stuff like that and, and really quantify defense. Well, it's because Ozzie Smith's range was so good. He was getting to balls that other guys wouldn't even take a step towards, you know, and, and you know, some of those plays he couldn't make. And it's like, oh, okay, error or whatever. And I, I think that's a part of it with Hakeem. Hakeem also had to do everything because they didn't have another receiver. So they, they would throw everything to Hakeem. The defense knew what was coming. Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, single team, double team, whatever. Um, you know, and then a lot of times he was going to have to bail out these errant throws that, that Brock Purdy was having. But we've seen Hakeem play everywhere. We saw him play a ton on the outside in 2017. Iowa State likes to play their best receiver in the slot quite a bit to get free yards, you know, to protect that offensive line and um, help out the quarterbacks because they've never had good quarterback plays the past couple of years. And so we got to see Hakeem more in the slot, you know, this year. We also got to see him more outside as well, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So we've seen him all around, the, you know, the, the formation, stuff like that. You know, a guy like uh, DK Metcalf never saw that. DK Metcalf was always on the left side, um, you know, in Ole Miss's air raid or whatever. Um, so I, I just think that that Hakeem is is way further along uh, than other people think. But I think you you do have to consider the the rawness thing, and I think that's where the drops came in. You know, the the balls that, like I said, other guys wouldn't have gotten to, or um, you know, a lack of, of of refinement and 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 technique. You know, in the NFL, he's going to learn that like he has to be stealing fractions of seconds. You know, so like when the you know when the quarterback throws or whatever, like he's got to be he's got to be stealing seconds. He's got to be opening those those macro uh, windows for his quarterbacks, um, and and then he's got to be stealing those seconds so that he's he's got a little bit more time to do do what he wants or whatever. And and so the ball is not bearing down on him when you know he's not quite ready for it and stuff like that. I think he's going to get there. Um, you know, this past season was the first time he'd ever you know been been a sort of featured receiver and developmentally it makes all the sense in the world why that's the case you know he's not a traditional guy where it's like oh you know it's one year wonder or whatever this guy was on bruce feldman's free class last year and and he's got insane physical dimensions you know i mean he he, i mean if they wanted to and they're not going to do it but they wanted to he could add 20 pounds easily and play tight end so I, i i just think he is really 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 good uh, there have been some people expressing reservations about Nikhil Harry, just uh, how he might separate at the next level. I mean, he's been really productive at Arizona State. Do you have any concerns about how his game is going to translate? Not really. Uh-uh. No, for, for me, he's he's basically Des Bryant 2.0. Um, you know, he's a he's a big, strong kid who, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the, this, you know, he, he gets nitpicked a lot because of the separation thing. It's like, oh, Nikhil can't separate. Um, well, I'd say a couple of things. Number one, that that thing is brought up to sort of insinuate that Hakeem is not a, or I'm sorry, that Nikhil is not a good athlete, which could not be further from the truth. He tests in the 75th percentile and was one of the more electric, um, you know, runners in the open field. And after the catch, the college football had, I mean, Nikhil Harry was an awesome punt returner. And he was the kind of guy where like, when he reversed the field in college, which he did a lot, you know, whether it was, whether it was, you know, on end arounds or like when he catch the ball, like, you know, one of the sidelines or whatever. And he realized like, Oh man, I can't, I can't get a field there. He would just try to loop around it, go all the way around the other side. So you'll see some just crazy runs after the catch that Nikhil had. And then the other thing is, is, you know, as, as far as, you know, the, the things that I was saying about Butler that he, he needs to, um, you know, uh, you know, and, you know, as his development continues here, you know, in the next year, he needs to learn how to create those macro throwing window opportunities just a little bit better, which is just kind of a nuanced thing. Um, and then also, you know, his, his his skill with the ball in the air. Those are things that are not questions for Nikhil Harry. He's a lead at both of them. Um, his ball skills are absolutely insane. You know, that, that kid made um, multiple catches in college that were on par with the Odell Beckham-like 
you have to rewind the, the you know your DVR. It's like no, he didn't come down with that. You know that Nikhil did several catches like that, like in college. Uh, just great ball skills. Um, and he's also a guy who you know he contorts well. He uses his body well. He gets up in the air. Very crafty. Um, so, so he does, you know, he, he opens up those, those opportunities for his quarterback. He goes up and gets it with, with the best of them. And he's extremely athletic, you know, after, yeah, after the catch, you know, when he's able to be. So I, I like him a lot. I, I put Nikhil, uh, number two. And, and those guys for me are clearly the top two, uh, receiving prospects in this class. Last one, Thor. Uh, you know, all the fantasy guys do their positional rankings, and not many people have had Jalen Hurd in their top 10, but he's your number eight. So, what do you like about Hurd? Yeah. I, okay. So, you know, and just to give some background for people, Jalen Hurd was a, was a five star athlete who, who stayed home and, and signed with, with Tennessee. You know, every, every program in the country wanted him. And he was a guy, you know, you look back at like his, his ESPN scouting report. They didn't know if he was going to play running back, uh, uh, tight end, uh, H-back, um, linebacker, or safety in college. I mean, he could have played anywhere, um, you know, anywhere, literally anywhere. Um, and so, you know, Tennessee decided, Butch Jones decided to make him like this, you know, sort of like old school throwback kind of like hammerback, even though, you know, Jalen Hurd is, is, is you know, the 6'5", you know, 226 guy who's got all these skills, you know, he's so skilled, uh, you know, ball skills and like everything like that. He's a, he's a smooth kid. And they tried to turn him into something that, that he wasn't. And I think Jalen was okay with that, like his, his first year and he became increasingly less okay with it. And Jalen famously started over Alvin Kamara at, at Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I, I think there, there started to be some, um, uh, you know, he, he started to, to butt heads with Butch Jones because he, he, I think he wanted his role to be changed um, and Butch wouldn't do it. And Hurd ends up getting a concussion. I think that was that was the end there. Um, that's when Hurd really realized, like, this is this, this you know, this role does not behoove my skill set. And also, um, you know, it, it really caps my financial future. It's, it's putting me in more risk. Um, and, you know, it, it could affect my health and it's also going to cut my career short. And I think he made a really inspired uh, decision in deciding to leave Tennessee transfers to Baylor. He, he has time to work, you know, and shifting out to receiver. That's what he wanted to do. And uh, so Baylor got to work with them. You know, they, they, they had a full season, you know, during his transfer year to like, you know, work this out or whatever. Um, you know, and then, you know, I, I go back to all the teams that I cover. My brother went to Baylor. So I'm sort of an adopted Baylor fan. There's another team I watched every single week. Jalen was a guy who uh, starting out last season, they, they put him in the slot. And so, you know, basically to start the season, it was just like the, the, the whole idea was like, Jalen, run six yards downfield, turn around, I'm going to throw you the ball. And you're going to catch it and then just do whatever you can after that. And so, you know, they do – and, you know, for people out there, Matt Rule is Baylor's coach. That's that's a guy the NFL badly wants. You know, both of the last two cycles, uh, Matt, Matt Rule has had interviews and he also may have gotten job offers that he's turned down since then. Very smart guy, you know, and, and, and runs his team like an NFL team. So, you know, Hurd was doing that initially. The other thing that was sort of a surprise was that, uh, you know, whatever Baylor was in a short yard situation, they needed three, four or five yards or whatever. Um, they would they, they would have Hurd harken back to his Tennessee days, put him in the I formation, uh, but, you know, just run him up the gut. Between the tackles, the kid is very, very difficult to deal with because he's a really good athlete, you know, and he's big, he's sturdy, you know, and, and he can bring the hammer. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's what they would do. So, you know, and then as the season went along, you know, when Jalen proved he could do like all the, all the big slot kind of stuff, um, they started to, you know, try different things with him. And then that's when he started to see him outside a little bit. And he, he had some real flash plays outside. We didn't get to see as much of that as we got to see the slot stuff. But what I would tell people is, and the reason I have him so high is 
coming out of the box in day one, I know he's going to be two things that the NFL is really going to like. He's a big power slot with athleticism and ball skills, number one. Number two is short yardage back. You know, and this is hidden value, but, you know, I look for hidden value a lot, you know, with these prospects, stuff like that. It's a hidden value thing, but it's so valuable. You know, you think like, for instance, the Vikings, you know, I'm coming to you guys from Minneapolis right now. The the Vikings have running back depth issues, you know, like, you know, they, they have Cook who's injury prone and then behind them Latavius left and uh, Rock Thomas is in trouble. And like, you know, you have all this different stuff. So you could use, uh, you could certainly, you could use a backup running back or you could just use a guy to fill a role, right? Like you, you could use a short yardage guy for sure. You could use like a, a Leroy Horde, you know, to, to do a blast from the past for, for going back to that 98 team or whatever. And if you draft Jalen Hurd, uh, you know, you can play him in the slot right away. You're going to be able to start there and see Dylan got to kick outside for a little bit, you know, whatever. Uh, you, you do that there. And then you can also use Hurd as that short yardage guy. And he can take carries from Cook, hopefully help keep Cook healthier, right? Um, and, you know, but other teams could do that as well. Um, so you're going to get that. And then can he develop into an outside receiver? Well, He's a super duper athletic kid who's 6'5, 226, who they thought he could do everything coming into to college, and he proved that he could make the NFL at at least two positions. And he, he was a star at, in, in two different conferences in the Power Five at two separate positions. I mean, th- think back in your mind, anyone out there, think back in your memory. When is the last time an offensive skill player was a star at two different FBS Power Five programs? You know, during his career or whatever, at separate positions. I, I just think he can do so many things. And I, I think, you know, when, when you know, it's a, you, you mentioned this before, it's a very deep receiver class. I think a guy like Jalen Hurd, uh, you know, he, he kind of slips through the cracks a little bit, you know, because of some of this stuff. But I mean, you know, I mean, he, he tested really well, um, you know, tested in the 76 percentile, I think, you know, at, at those dimensions. And I, I just think he can do a whole lot of things. And I think there's untapped ceiling left. So I, for me, he's a day two pick, you know, I, I have no idea where, where he's going to go. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if, if I needed a receiver, um, certainly in the third round, I'm dialing him up. Yeah, Thor, I didn't think it was possible for me to be any more amped up about the draft this week, but you have turned the dials up to 11 with this conversation. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here to celebrate football Christmas. You really brought the eggnog and fruitcake to the party. So uh, before I let you go, can you tell everyone where they can find you and uh, how you're going to be spending the rest of your draft week? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate it. Um, come to Roto World. Uh, go to the NFL Draft or College Football section um, is where we have all of our. It's like the you know the house for all of our our draft content, and you can check out all my deep dives for positions. So I go, man, I rank out. 40 players, 50 players in some of these positions, you know, and there's write-ups at the top 20, 25, I think some position we even went to like, you know, 30 of them or whatever. Um, you know, we have all the spider webs in there. We have videos, you know, that I, I pulled tweets, you know, with, with videos, you know, examples of these players games, stuff like that, all the dimension, spark scores, RAS scores, like all that kind of stuff. So check out that deep dive series. Um, we are almost through. Thank goodness. Uh, I think the safety one, it, this is the last one. I think it either runs today or tomorrow. Um, but, you know, we have all the links there so you, you can catch up. My top 400 board is what I'm going to start working on right when I get off here with with Pat slotting them. All my position rankings are done. So that's going to be coming out here in the next couple of days as well. Also have a mock draft coming on either Wednesday or Thursday, my final one. And uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Thorku. That's T-H-O-R-K-U. I put all the links to all this kind of stuff and I, I i put out my my draft hot takes there so yeah come and say hi yeah and you've you've got to read thor's capsules they are uh they are not 
bland scout talk. This is uh, there's some good stuff there. You know, it's it's done uh, like a guy who was in the Iowa creative writing program. So um, yeah, check out Thor's work. Thor, thanks again. Really appreciate your time and uh, enjoy the draft. It was an honor and a pleasure, Pat. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's going to do it for this week's show. My thanks once again to Thor Nystrom of Roto World. Find him on Twitter at ThorKu. That's Thor K U. Thank you to my producer, Colm Kelly. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. And Colm has been doing some really good pre draft podcasts for RotoViz himself. Be sure to check those out at rotoviz.com. And a big shout out to my colleague, Melissa Jacobs, the owner and proprietor of thefootballgirl.com, which hosts my fantasy rankings year round. And at this very moment, you can also find my mock draft at thefootballgirl.com. I don't know how accurate it will prove to be, but hopefully you'll find it a little more colorful than your typical mock draft. But my thanks to Melissa for giving me a platform. Find her on Twitter at the football girl and be sure to listen to her podcast with Liz Loza of Yahoo this week. You can find it right on thefootballgirl.com. And last but not least, my sincere thanks to all of you. I'm honored that you listen to the show and I hope you'll be back next week when I'll have another terrific guest with me. And now, my friends, let's get ready for the NFL Draft. It's football Christmas, that most joyous time of year. So I'll say to you all as I drive out of sight, Merry Christmas to all and to all a Devin White. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in. Are you?